Good afternoon. Um, I'm Michael Backus. Um, you probably all know that. I'm the team leader of the Goon Squad um, with Micaiah. Um, I also want to give Micaiah a shout out because she made this PowerPoint and it's totally awesome. Um, and so you can thank Micaiah for that. Um, and so um, I'm teaching today. Um, I'm going to be teaching the rest of the evangelism packet for the rest of the summer. Um, I'm actually going a week early because of Zach Simmons' departure. Um, and so you can find my talk on page 69 under the title, An Old Story for the New Day, While We Tell It, Part 1. And this talk's name is Eternity. Um, and so this is a two-part series on why we evangelize. Um, the second half will be coming next week. Um, and so also to give Zach Simmons' talk, for those of you who are type A and like to have a full notebook, we'll have a special guest coming later in the summer. And so... Um, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and so I'm going to pray, and then let's begin. Father, um, I pray um, that you would do a work during this talk. God, I just pray that um, you would open students' hearts to um, hear what the Bible has to say about eternity. And God, I pray that um, this talk would be helpful. And if it's not, God, that... Um, you would cause students to forget what I say. Ultimately, God, I pray that you work during this talk. And so in your name we pray, amen. So, like I said before, um, the title for my talk is Old Story for a New Day, Why Do We Evangelize Part 1, Eternity. And it's not often within our age that we think about death. Unlike in times past, it's unlikely that any like nick, bump, bump scratch, ache, or pain could kill you. Modern medicine has revolutionized and improved life in this respect. Like on average now, we live to be about 80 years old. And even a century before, like that time would have been half that. We know that death exists. We see death in the case of our elders and the seemingly freak accidents that do occur in our generation. However, we don't often think about death for ourselves. There is a haunting reality. We all will die, and we must face the reality that there is an eternity after death. The Bible suggests that there are two resting spots for all people. One for those who are trusting in Jesus and treasure Christ above all things, and one for those who are not trusting Jesus. Today, I will discuss three questions. What does eternity have in store for those not trusting in Christ? Two. What does eternal life look like for those trusting in Christ? And three, how do eternal realities explain why we evangelize? Point one, what does eternity look like for those not in Christ? God is clear that for those not in Christ, the wages of sin is death. All people have sinned, and those who are not trusting in Jesus and his work will spend all of eternity dying a repetitive death in hell. The Bible speaks a lot about hell and what it's like. But there are three images that I will cover this afternoon. The first image, hell, a place of eternal destruction. <coughs> the first image of hell that is seen biblically is a place of eternal, never-ending destruction for the sinner. In Matthew 18, 7 through 9, Jesus suggests that it would be better to be crippled than to be a sinner and be thrown into the fire of hell. In hell, sinners will be thrown into the fire that will never end. Mark 9, 48 describes hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire has not been quenched. Hell is never-ending torment. It's like dying a hundred thousand times and never really dying. Hell is a ter terrible place of eternal destruction. Image two, hell is the everlasting pouring out of God's wrath. 
The second image of hell that is seen biblically is the everlasting pouring out of God's wrath. This can be seen in Romans 2.5, where sinners and permanent hearts are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The book of Revelation gives us one image of God's wrath. It describes God's wrath as being poured out in full strength, and that it will result in an eternal torment of fire and sulfur. Certainly, God's wrath will consist of fire. However, the imagery of fire is likely metaphorical. God's wrath is like your worst dream, being played out over and over again and repeated. God's wrath is a scary thing, and in hell, God will pour his wrath out onto eternity. The third image of hell that I'm going to cover today is hell as a place of banishment or exile. The third image of hell that we can see biblically is that hell is the eternal place of banishment or exile. 2 Thessalonians 1-9 describes hell as sinners, a place where sinners will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Not being in the presence of the glory of the Lord is a terrible thing. When you consider that all of the created order portrays the glory of God, not being in the presence of God's glory is a terrible thing. It would be awful. There wouldn't be any of the pleasures that we see and feel on earth because God's glory is portrayed in every good thing that we experience. This would be a horrific existence. Another way of thinking about the banishment or exile of hell is the image of a child alone in a dark room in the middle of the night. The child cries out for their parents, and yet no one answers. No one comes. This is one th way that hell will look like for those who are not trusting in Christ. People will call out and plead for God, yet God will not hear them because they are intolerable sinners in sight. Hell is a place of banishment and exile for the sinner. Hell is really all three views and more. Hell is torments beyond what we can describe or even imagine. Yes, hell is a place of eternal destruction. And yes, hell is a place of the pouring out of God's wrath. And yes, hell is a place of banishment or exile. Hell is so horrific that it is all three of these things and more. Hell is so bad that there is no combination of words that could ever describe what hell is actually like. The horrors are beyond our imagination, and it will be a horrific thing for those not in Christ. Some of you are wondering and thinking how a loving God could send people to hell. There is one reality of this, that sin has a horrific nature. I think sometimes we can fall into the trap where we think that sin is just this really or petty or cavalier thing. However, even the tiniest of sins is a horrific thing. It should be thought of as grand theft robbery or cheating within the context of marriage. Sin itself is serious, and sin alone is bad enough to send someone against hell. But sin isn't just about ourselves. Sin is ultimately us wronging God. And think about it. What happens when someone is wronged? They deserve a defense of some sort. When someone is wronged, the magnitude of the defense depends on the relationship of the person and the dignity of the person offended. I'm going to repeat this because I think it's really important. When someone is wronged, the magnitude of the offense depends on the relationship of the person and the dignity of the person offended. When we sin, we are wronging God, and he has the right to defend himself. So I'm going to take that statement apart, starting with the first half, that defense depends on the relationship, and then we'll move on to the second half, defensive dignity, and explain why this justifies God in sending sinners to hell. Defensive relationship. 
When someone is wronged, the magnitude of the offense depends on the relationship of the person. Now to illustrate this, think about when you rely, lie in a relationship. Um, the degree of punishment or the severity of your lie differs in relation to the person you lie to. If you lie to a random stranger, the consequences are pretty low. Lie to your boss at work and the consequences increase. Lie to your husband and wife and the pain that is caused by your sin will increase tenfold. Consider how in Ephesians 5, the Bible compares the relationship between husband and wife to be like Christ in the church. We, when we sin, we violate the highest form of relationship that we were designed for. We were designed to be in total, complete unity with God. And when we think about how much this hurts God, God is totally justified in sending sinners to hell. Part two, defensive dignity. When someone is wrong, the magnitude of defense also depends on the dignity of the person offended. Take, for example, like a large company with, that's well-respected. If someone acts unethically and like falsifies accounting records, then the company is totally justified in firing this person to protect its own reputation. No one will ask, is this unfair for this person? Because they were clearly doing something that was wrong, something that was unethical. We know God is glorious, God is perfect, and God is just. God is holy and set apart. God is the most reputable company that we could ever know. And we, as sinners, are like the cheating accountant, the one who falsifies the records. God, if God were to forgive sinners without the sacrifice of Christ, God would be sacrificing his own dignity, something that God could not do. If God wants to maintain his holiness and be just, God cannot forgive sinners who are not in Christ. God's defense of his dignity justifies sending sinners to hell. Clearly, God is justified in sending sinners to hell because of the relationship that he has with us and the defense of his own dignity. There is, however, a third assumption that should be explored as well. That is, that sinners don't stop sending into hell. Commonly, I think we can think that it's not fair for somebody who spent sins for 60 to 70 years to be sent to hell. This is not the indication that we get in the Bible. Um, in one of the glimpses that we get into hell and physically like what's going on there in the story of rich man and Lazarus, we see that the rich man spends his whole entire life pursuing excessive amounts of wealth. He's consumed with himself and wouldn't ever seek out God on earth. When the rich man dies, he youngs out he, and goes to hell. He yells out to his poor counterpart, Lazarus, who is seated in heaven next to Abraham. When the rich man does this, there is no indication that the rich man has changed his way. He's still self-consumed. He's not seeking out God. Nothing has changed. He is still sinning. This snapshot reveals that people don't stop sinning at the end of 70 or 80 years, but rather sin on to eternity. When we consider that people don't stop sinning in hell, it justifies God in sending them to, eternal, uh, to hell for an eternity. There is, of course, good news for the sinner found in Jesus. God has acted to reconcile sinners to himself and to die on the cross in the most lopsided exchange of human history. Those who are not in Christ have an eternal hope beyond what they can imagine. For the believer in Christ, eternity will be spent in heaven. There are a lot of ways that we can think about how we're going to fill out point two, what does eternity look like for those in Christ, and today I will touch on three images. Image one, an image everlasting flourishing. If hell is a place of eternal destruction, then heaven is a place of eternal flourishing. 
Romans 8.20 points out that all of creation is subject to fertility, meaning that the earth is messed up because of sin. In heaven, sin will be no more because of the redemptive powers of Christ have broken the curse of sin, and so all nature will be set free from its brokenness. Creation won't fade. Flowers won't wither. Animals won't get sick and die. Everything will be perfect as it should have been. In heaven, because the curse of sin is lifted, no longer will we toil at work. Things won't get broken. There will be no fertility. Engineers will have the ability to design without limits. Business people will be able to build and organize companies without the daunting limitations and constraints that exist on earth. Teachers will be able to teach and have their students fully understand because they will know, their students will no longer misbehave and lose attention. Any occupation will lose its utility associated with it on earth. For those in Christ, we can expect to have a new body in heaven. These bodies, unlike our earthly bodies, will not be perish. They will be perfect and imperishable. No longer will we get cancer, diabetes, or heart disease, or any other of the horrific diseases that exist because of sin. We will have a new body that is imperishable, and we will not get sick. Heaven will have everlasting flourishing, and those in Christ will enjoy it forever. The second image is the pouring out of God's love. For those in Christ within heaven, we will experience the pouring out of God's love. As Jonathan Edwards puts it, There in heaven dwells the God, from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is, or ever was, proceeds. There dwells God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, united in infinitely dear and incomprehensible mutual and eternal love. End quote. In heaven, we will be fully in God's love, and it will be all that we experience, because we will be in the full presence of God the Father all the time. Perhaps one of the best ways that we can think about God's love is adoption. As Ephesians points out, we have been adopted in Christ by God. In heaven, we will know and fully see that we have a daddy that loves us so much. We will see the riches of his inheritance that he has given us. In heaven, we will no longer be orphans, abandoned on the streets, but rather we will enjoy daddy's house that he out of love has built for us and designed to be with us. In heaven, we will fully know the pouring out of God's love. The third image that we see of heaven um, is complete unity with God. <laughs> Getting a little excited over there. <laughs> um, so like I said, um, the third image of heaven um, that we'll see is complete unity with God. If hell is a place of banishment or exile, heaven is a place of unity with God. For the believer in Jesus, Heaven will be complete with unity of God through Christ. In Christ, the believer will be united with God through Jesus. The curse of sin will be undone. We will know God as Adam knew God in Genesis 2, where they walk amongst the trees together. In heaven, we will no longer suffer from the perpetual loneliness and emptiness that haunts us all on earth, because we will be fully with God, the only thing that could ever fill the void. <clears throat> in heaven, we will be in unity with God, and it will constantly satisfy us. In being with unity with God, we will fully understand the glory and all that Jesus has done for us in the cross. We will have the richest experience because we are in unity with God. Being in unity with God is perhaps one of the richest things that we will experience in heaven. 
The reality is, is that heaven is so much of this and more. Yes, heaven is a place of flourishing. And yes, heaven is the pouring out of God's love. And yes, heaven will be a place of total unity with God. In heaven, all three of these things will be true. And yet heaven will be so much more. Much like hell, or the opposite of hell, heaven will be joy beyond your imagination. Excitement beyond any earthly excitement. The reality is, is that heaven will be so fantastic that no combination of words on earth could ever fully explain what it is. Heaven will be pure bliss. There is, however, reality that we must realize the joys of heaven and the horrors of hell. People will go to either place based off what they believe and don't believe. This leads me into my third point. How do eternal realities explain what we evangelize? When we think about eternity, we need to evangelize. As we have covered regarding eternity, the Bible is distinctively clear that people will go to heaven because they believe and trust in Jesus, or they will go to hell because they are sinners and not trusting in Jesus. This should change how we evangelize and should motivate us to do it. We need to tell people about Jesus because people who don't hear about them will go to hell. To help prove my point, um, we're going to watch this video by Penn Jillette. Um, Penn Jillette is a comedian. Um, he does a stand-up show around the com- country. Um, he also, a couple of years ago, made an appearance on The Apprentice. Um, keep in, this is like after a guy came up to him after one of his shows. Um, and Penn Jillette is an atheist, and so this was after an interaction with Christian. Well, the Half that was old, but a big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, fixed the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand, because he'd give those away. He had the, from the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, that's not worth explaining. We had props from the show and we did them the night before. Uh, he wasn't in there that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted to leave it very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it was from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Uh, Psalms from the New just part of the New Testament. A little book about this thing. This thing. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. I mean, he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm saying I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. 
And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. And then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling of this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed you have a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like your show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get into. As Pendulette pointed out, eternity is real. How much do you have to hate somebody not to evangelize? And Pendulette is an atheist, and yet he seems to understand something that most Christians do not realize. We need to share our faith because it is the most loving thing to do. Eternity is real, and it is coming for us. All, every one of us. How often do we not share our faith? because it's inconvenient, or it might be awkward. Like, I know, I know I'm know, i like, I've done that many times where I'm trying to share my faith on campus, and I'm walking around, and it just seems like this would be weird, or this would be awkward. But how much do I not love that person, that random stranger, because I'm not sharing the gospel with them? And what, what if that moment, um, that moment where you share the gospel, is the only opportunity that somebody had to hear and accept the gospel. Isn't it totally worth telling that person about Jesus, despite how weird it might be? Hell exists, and we have an obligation to do it. I love the example that Penn Teller uses of a truck, and if somebody was about to get run over by a truck going down the road, wouldn't we yell and scream? and try and push them out of the way, it's the exact same with eternity. Eternity is coming. And believe it or not, it's bearing down rapidly. We need to proclaim the gospel of everyone because people will either go to heaven or hell based off if they trust in Jesus or not. And they need us to tell it about this, about this reality. We need to proclaim the gospel to our coworkers, our fellow room members, our families, anybody and everybody so that we can love people properly. Father, I pray uh, that we would understand the eternal realities that exist. God, this is a heavy topic. This is hard. I, I just pray um, that 
it would help us to understand you and know you more and what you have done for us in Christ and what Jesus did in going to hell for us. Uh, Father, I, I just pray uh, that we would love people better. Uh, and God, I just pray that we would make your name known everywhere, that we would poster the name of Jesus on our campuses, in our workplaces, in our rooms, with our parents. God, you are the only one that can make this happen. In your name we pray, amen.